Well, this morning in this Easter season moving into Pentecost, we start a new sermon series. I've titled the series something that I've titled a sermon series before, and that's a quote from Wendell Berry, where at the end of one of his poems, he invites his readers to practice resurrection. So I'm calling this series Practice Resurrection 2.0. It is a wonderful description of what our work is always as followers of Jesus Christ, and that is to live into the reality of, of his life and his continued invitation, his call to us to follow and to abide in him. With a view to what that song that we just sang says, you know, lead us on the road of sacrifice, that in unity the face of Christ may be clear for all the world to see, that we get the opportunity to reflect the image of Christ to our world as we practice resurrection, as we live into the truth of what it means that Christ is alive. The so what of the resurrection, in other words, that reality that Jesus does live and continues to invite us to follow is really what every day of the Christian life gives us. It's the question that it presents to us. And we're looking at passages that describe this space as the early church knew it over the next seven weeks. And kind of getting a picture of how they experienced this liminal space of feeling the absence of Jesus because he was not with them in the same ways that he had been with them before, and also feeling the presence of Jesus and anticipating their own resurrection in due time. And so we're looking today at the story of the, the road to Emmaus, one of those post-resurrection stories, and we're looking at Luke 24, verses 13 and following. And if you're interested in, in all of the sermons in this series, there's a description of the sermon series out on the table in the narthex there, and you can pick one of those up after the service. So let me read for us the story of the road to Emmaus, beginning in verse 13 of Luke 24. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And he asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us they were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see him. 
And then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead of them as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened to them on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes this day and make yourself known to us in new ways that we might be energized by the truth of your life among us and so empowered by your Holy Spirit to be the people who continue to follow and give witness to you and reflect your love. For we pray in your name. Amen. So I want to share with you one of my favorite novels today. I won't read the whole thing to you while I'm up here, but um, I want to share a passage from the novel by Marilyn Robinson, the novels entitled Gilead. This is a, a novel. She's written actually four books about the characters who appear in this novel, and this is the first of them, and it takes place in Gilead, Iowa. This particular novel is set in the 1950s, and it's, uh, it's effectively the journal that a pastor in Gilead, John Ames, writes to his seven-year-old son. He himself is an elderly man who is uh, dying of a heart condition, and he wants to get down his history for his seven-year-old son. He married late in life, obviously, and his wife was much younger than he. She was his second wife. His first wife had died early on in their marriage, and he had been a single widower for most of his years as a pastor. And the passage that I want to read in this journal that he's writing to his son is a passage about where he's talking about his sermons. I can't tell you that uh, there isn't an identification that I have with him at this point. In fact, that's why I love this book so much. But Marilyn Robinson has done the uh, remarkable thing of somehow crawling inside the mind of a pastor and knowing our joys and our concerns, our, our doubts and our confidence. And John Ames reflects all those things. But he's wondering as he is facing death, what will happen to the sermons that he has saved in boxes in the attic. And he's, again, remember he's writing to his seven-year-old son here who doesn't know he's writing, but hopefully we'll pick this up one day and, and read it. 
I think every day about going through those old sermons of mine to see if there are one or two I might want you to read sometime. But there are so many, and I'm afraid, first of all, that most of them might seem foolish or dull to me. It might be best to burn them. But that would upset your mother, who thinks a great deal more of them than I do. For their sheer mass, I suppose, since she hasn't read them. You will probably remember that the stairs to the attic are a sort of ladder and that it is terribly hot up there when it is not terribly cold. It would be worth my life to try to get those big boxes down on my own. It's humiliating to have written as much as Augustine and then to have to find a way to dispose of it. There is not a word in any of those sermons I didn't mean when I wrote it. If I had the time, I could read my way through 50 years of my innermost life. What a terrible thought. If I don't burn them, someone else will sometime, and that's another humiliation. This habit of writing is so deep in me, as you will know well enough, if this endless letter is in your hands, if it has not been burned also. What Robinson is giving us in John Ames' dissertation there is his reflection on, on kind of his life's work, obviously, and on the truth that's true for all of us in the faith, and that is that as we profess faith and seek to follow Jesus, we have to talk about what that means. We, we have to discuss that with one another. We have to be in discussion and, and processing these things. And as a pastor, I know that we pastors spend our lives discussing the faith, exegeting and writing about texts of Scripture, and yet also knowing, as John Ames knows, that as we do this, we recognize just how inadequate our efforts are in capturing the essence of the love of God. At best, we can just keep talking about it and hope that something strikes close to the height and length and depth and breadth of the love of God. But there you have it. You have 50 years of sermons locked away in the either too hot or too cold attic that his old body can't even go up to get down and retrieve anymore, and wondering what he's going to do with all of those things and recognizing they're most important to him, and someone might never go through them. But discussion about the faith is something we all have to do, pastors especially. But if we're followers of Jesus, we need to be in those discussions. We need to talk theology with one another. If we've been grabbed by the good news, we have to process it. We have to talk about it. We have to try to understand it. And that's what these two disciples are doing as they are on the way out of Jerusalem. And that's the most important thing to point out about the geography of this story of Emmaus, is that the most important thing is not where they're going, but what they're leaving. Because Jerusalem was a place for them on that day of disappointment, not of celebration, of disappointment 
and question, what does all of this mean? And so they're talking with each other about all the things that have happened there, and Jesus happens up to them, and like so many of the stories of the resurrection, they do not recognize him. And that's true for almost all of the the Gospels that, that report the resurrection in this way. Mark doesn't really talk about it in this way, but the Gospels that report the resurrection have these instances of, of just an absence of recognition, initially not quite knowing who they're talking to when Jesus shows up. And so Jesus shows up and says, what things that happened in Jerusalem? And what's so interesting about this encounter is I think that it's the first hint to these guys that someone's interested in them. And someone's interested in what they're thinking about and and what they've experienced because Jesus encounters them. He cares about what's on their mind. He gives them the opportunity to express their hearts and mind. And the first thing that happens is they feel the freedom to just stop and say nothing and look sad. And then we find out why they're looking sad because of that wonderful phrase, we had hoped. We had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one, as we understand the theology of the Messiah, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to drive out the Romans. We had hoped that he was the one that was going to restore the throne of David. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel and set us free from this oppression. In other words, we thought we knew everything he was about. But what we had hoped for did not come to be, and yet they had not given up, for they were still in discussion and talking about this with this stranger. And then when they're chided by Jesus for not knowing the scriptures, what they do is listen attentively. And they want the discussion to continue, even though they're struggling to understand, and so they say, stay with us. They use the same invitation that Jesus uses in John's gospel, abide. That word, Greek word, meno, stay, abide with us, come live with us, come eat a meal with us, come be a part of our our lives for this evening so that we can continue the discussion, so that we can continue to process these things. And then, as what happens in most of the post-resurrection stories happens. It, it happens here as well. It, they recognize him. Like the story with Mary Magdalene, the trigger was an awareness of a relationship more than anything else because Mary Magdalene, as, as Deb kind of ushered us through that story last week, what turns her eyes on, what opens her eyes to the reality that she's talking to Jesus is the pronunciation of her own name coming from his mouth. And here, what opens the eyes of these two disciples is the breaking of the bread. And during this time where Jesus had, in initiating this supper, said, do this in remembrance of me, They became aware of the truth that doing this will help us to re-experience his presence. Do this in remembrance of me. 
What Jesus was saying was, do this, and you will root and ground yourself in the reality of steadfast love. There are not just words at this point. There are not just explanations at this point. There are not just discussions at this point. But there is food at this point. And their eyes are opened. I want to show you an image of an artist, Diego Velasquez. I've shown it to you before. It's called Supper at Emmaus, or the Moorish Kitchen Maid. Uh, Velasquez was born in 1599 and, and died in the late 1600s. And the lovely thing about this, this Spanish painter uh, is painting a reality in Spain, which is the presence of, of Moorish servants in Spanish households, because that's Spain just had this diversity. And, and it's this outsider, this Moorish kitchen maid, who is really the subject of this painting. And if you look very closely, you can barely see it here, but you can kind of see the halo up there and the guys talking at the table. And what's interesting about the head of this Moorish kitchen maid is that she's obviously listening. And she seems to know before the guys who are having the theological discussion know. She seems to have apprehended a truth that is not quite yet apprehended by those who are discussing theology at the table. She has connected with this one in a relational way. And as they are embroiled in these discussions of theology, and then they are brought up short by the breaking of the bread. It's kind of the moment just before that. Velasquez lets us know it's Jesus because of the halo. But then at this point, Jesus disappears. And it's as if the message that stays with those two disciples is simply, I am real, but not present with you in the way that I was. But oh, how we try to keep him present with us in the way that he was or the way that we need him to be. Oh, how we try to put him in the boxes that we create so that he can be there for us in the ways that we think he should be there for us. And our explanations of who he is and what he has done is what we try to freeze him into. But what happens here is this sense of, a, of an act of love, really, trying to know and, and understand. When we try to put him in our box, we're trying to have a sense of who it is that we're relating to. It's not that we're bad for doing that. We don't have any choice but to do that. Pastors have no choice but to stand up front in front of you each week and, and preach and try to restrict this message to, to 20 minutes, or even to restrict it to words in some sense when it means so much more than, than anything that can be said. But the truth that has to be recognized in all our discussions, as important as they are, is in another Wendell Berry poem when he says, explain it how you will, the only thing explainable will be your explanation. Because he's so much bigger than all of the theological discussions that we could have. 
And the thing we need to know is that every theological discussion that we have is really in the service of prayer. The best reason to talk about God is that it is meant to facilitate the act of talking with God, relationship with our maker. Paul Stuckey of of Peter, Paul, and Mary wrote a song called Him, H-Y-M-N, where he talks about faith, and especially the faith that he has as a little boy that carries over into his adulthood. It just speaks so much to what we're dealing with today. I I wanted to read it to you. I've read it before to you. And you're going to hear a lot of that over the next year. I've read it before to you. I have... (laughs) I'm kind of lost in nostalgia in some way, and so all of those things are coming up in my head. But this is one that's worth hearing again. And he says this, he says, Sunday morning, very bright, I read your book by colored light that came in through the pretty window picture. I visited some houses where they said that you were living, and they talked a lot about you, and they spoke about your giving. They passed the basket with some envelopes. I just had time to write a note, and all it said was, I believe in you. Passing conversations where they mentioned your existence and the fact that you had been replaced by your assistants. The discussion was theology, and when they smiled and turned to me, all that I could say was, I believe in you. I visited your house again on Christmas or Thanksgiving and a a balded man said you were dead. I've never said that, but, um, and a balded man said you were dead, but the house would go on living. He recited poetry. As he saw me stand to leave, he shook his head and said, I'd never find you. My mother used to dress me up and while my dad was sleeping, we would walk down to your house without speaking. And it's beautiful. I'd be glad to give any of you a copy of it if you want it, but it's it's just a beautiful song. And when he says the discussions of theology and his response to those discussions was all that I could say was I believe in you. What he remembers is the light through the stained glass. What he remembers is walking hand in hand with his mother to go to church. And what he remembers especially is just simply a sense of God's presence. And that's the image of a heart burning within. A way in which that heart burning within gives birth to faith and also urges him at this stage in his life to persevere in that faith. In the final analysis, all that any of us can say with absolute certainty is, I believe in you. The life of faith is something we live and not just something we talk about. And we take each step on this road of faith because ultimately what we believe is that Jesus Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's pray.
Lord, bring to our memories and our imaginations those experiences of your presence that encourage us to keep going along the way. Help us to remember why it is we believe in you, and then may that memory and the encouragement of it to persevere be with us and sustain us on the way on which you have called us. For we pray in your name. Amen.